Is this thing on? I think so. The light's there. All right. Hey, everyone. This is Pat. This is Posh. And this is the Founder Hour podcast. We're glad you're here. We have a big episode coming up, but before we get into it, we just wanted to remind you guys to please subscribe. Leave us a rating. And a review. And follow us on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook at The Founder Hour. Thank you guys for being here. Spread the word and enjoy the show. What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? This is the Founder Hour Podcast. I'm your co-host, Pat. And I'm Posh. And today we're hanging out with Chris Stang, the co-founder and CEO of Infatuation, and more recently, Zagat. Is that your That's right. Zagat. 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 Zagat like the cat. That was one of the first things that I was told <laughs> when we acquired the company. So Love it. Um, thanks for having me. Nice yeah, to be here. Thanks having the show. I'm glad we made this happen. I, I know you're not originally from LA and you're just kind of in town for business. So Just breezing through to get out of the New York City cold weather. So yeah. So uh, let's kind of start from the beginning. We always like to kind of get a backstory before we get into what you're doing, what you're up to now. So tell us where you grew up and what things were like as a, as a kid. What young yeah. Chris was like. Yeah, so I grew up in Denver, Colorado, um, which at the time was, you know, not the Denver, Colorado that people sort of know now as this like hot, you know, yeah. destination for young people to move to. Um, but it was always a great place to live. Most of the people I know didn't leave because it's an amazing city and the weather's way better than people think and they're skiing, you know, all that stuff. But um, I was um, always really interested in music. Uh, I played guitar, but I wasn't that good at it. So I ended up um, getting into college radio at Colorado State University where I went to school. And that was really a big kind of light bulb moment for me because then I saw, I guess, uh, maybe potential career path either in radio or really ultimately I sort of became obsessed with major record companies, mm -hmm. wanted to work for a major record company. Um, got for, for reference, like around what year is this? To, uh, I mean, I guess I started at the radio station in college in 1998 or something. Okay, so like this that. is kind of the time when like record companies were like the play, like the place to be if you wanted to get into music. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, there's a, I think there's a lot to be said still that like record companies are still you know they right, still matter a lot. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think look, you know, especially for someone that was interested in music, I was always so you know I loved Led Zeppelin, and you would you know see the Led Zeppelin you know Atlantic Records logo on the back of the album. And I just got really into that idea that I could work at a company like that who, you know, where there were lots and lots of artists of different genres and, um, and especially one with a lot of history like Atlantic where Ray Charles and Aretha Franklin and the Rolling Stones and all these sort of like really, you know, iconic artists came from and, and of different, you know, genres. So um, I started actually, I got an internship through the radio station at Electra Records mm -hmm. um, and ended up working in Denver for them as a college rep. That then led to a job offer to be an assistant at Atlantic Records after I graduated from college in 2002. In New York? Or? In New York. So I moved from Denver to New York City in like July of 2002. It was right after, you know, September 11th. So kind of a strange time in New York City, a strange time in music because that was right when Napster was really starting to affect the business. So kind of going into this industry that didn't seem to have a lot of uh, growth in front of it, actually, quite frankly, the opposite. But I was just so passionate about the music and the idea that I could work at a company like that. And, um, and so it, none of, none of the rest of it mattered. I just wanted to be there. And, um, and yeah, I ended up staying at that company for 12 years and, um, was really happy there. It was a great company, still is a great company. Yeah. And when you started, was it like under the Warner music group arm or did that happen after? Yeah. So at the there? time when I started, it was actually part of AOL time Warner. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, Warner music group was a, was a, you know, a subsidiary basically of that company. And then within a probably, I guess, like two years, AOL Time Warner basically sold it and it became, um, I guess, like a privately held company under yeah. this guy, Edgar Bronfman. It then got sold again um, to uh, a guy named Lim Blavatnik, who still owns the group. So it definitely went through some iterations over time, um, just as the music business did overall. You know, there was, I sat. I sat in my seat and watched so many like incredible record companies close their doors, MCA records, Arista records, or get I acquired mean, and just kind of mostly just shut down. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, either stacked up or shut down. Yeah. That was what was happening throughout my entire career in the industry. But at the same time, like I was living the dream, right? I was like on the road with bands. I was working, I first started working in the radio promotion department. So I eventually got promoted from assistant to um, the New York regional promotion manager, which meant that, 
I had, you know, 10 states and probably 200 radio stations that were under my purview. And my job is to go get the records played on the radio. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was cool. I ended up traveling a lot. I had an expense account. I was 24 years old, rolling around the com- country with bands and, you know, it was amazing. Um, but I got pretty burnt out after a little while, like waking up in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania on a Saturday, just being like, where am I? What am I doing? Yeah. Um, and then decided I needed to change and was fortunate enough to get moved into the marketing department at Atlantic Records. Uh, and that really was a really great fit for me. I was never, I guess I never thought of myself as someone who was a marketer, but I really did well there. Had great bosses who taught me how to do marketing. And, and then I ended up basically... Um, for I guess the next like six or seven or eight years or however many years, um, working really closely with just some amazing acts from, you know, new young artists like Santi Gold and Leaky Lee and Skrillex at the time who was, you know, blowing up right before our eyes to, um, some iconic artists like Matchbox 20 and ultimately Coldplay and, um, Bruno Mars and, um, just had like an amazing kind of like dream experience, both from the perspective of the bands I got to interact with and the front row seat I got to have to everything that they did and how they grew. And also just working with really good people who were smart and, um, yeah, it was, it was awesome. But throughout the way, um, I ended up starting a company, which wasn't necessarily something that I planned to happen. But, uh, when I was actually in college radio, I ended up meeting a guy named Andrew Steinthal, who's now my business partner in the infatuation. So Chris, before we talk about the infatuation, what did you think your career would look like at the time? I mean, you were a young guy. Did you envision the future to be in the music industry? I thought I was going to work my ass off and become the president of a record company. And um, when I left, it was really crazy because they were basically like, don't leave. We were going to make you the head of marketing in Atlantic. And Well, it's easy to say once you're going to leave. Yeah. No, I mean, they were. I mean, it was It was funny because... It was my contract was up right when I left, and so that was what was sort of spurring a bunch of stuff around um, some changes inside of the company. Either mm-hmm. way, but um, what was so weird about that exact moment was that I had sort of become presented then with more, you know, progress along that path. Right, I, I could imagine going from head of marketing to like a general manager position, and then ultimately, once a seat opened up, if I did my job and was good at my job, then maybe that would become, you know, a, a big position like that would become available to me. But what was so interesting and so telling, I think, about the fact that I, I needed to make the decision that I was making is that even though I could see that path, I wasn't afraid to to risk walking away from it. And it was because at that point, we had been doing the infatuation for five years on the side at that point, and it was big. It was big in New York, and and we were pretty well known around the globe because of things like Instagram and stuff like that. But it was just an easy decision for me to make to say, you know what? I'm really, 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 really lucky that the people that work with me believe in me enough to offer me bigger positions over time and more responsibility. But I got to like pursue this other thing because even if I got as far as being the president of a record company someday, I knew that I would always have in the back of my head. Like if for some reason the infatuation didn't work out the yeah. way you wanted it, you could always go back. Exactly. I yeah. Look, you hoped, you never know. Yeah. Um, but I always felt like that, I felt that there was a higher likelihood of me having regrets if I had a state at the company and wondered what could have been with the infatuation, then if I had gone and pursued the infatuation, it would have blown up in midair and then I would have sort of had to re-enter, you know, the music business to figure right. it out. And I feel like that's something that people do think about a lot, like entrepreneurs who maybe are working at a large organization have this idea, but they don't know if they should pursue it, take that risk. Yeah. But it's kind of like, is anyone going to knock you for that? And this in this day and age, like it, to, to go out and pursue something that you really are passionate about and see a, you know, like if for some reason you wanted to get back in, right? Like, yeah. Is, is that even like a thing like in internally that isn't, is, is it, I don't know. No, I don't about? think, I don't think it's something that anyone would, would fault you for, you know, leaving and pursuing something that you thought might have a lot of potential, but there's definitely an opportunity cost, right? So yeah. you, you leave and you spend two years grinding on something that ultimately doesn't work out. Maybe that position that was open for you that day that you left wasn't two years later because they had to do their thing and keep moving forward, right? So I think it, that, it, that, that moment when people decide should they pursue this idea or this thing that they've been working on full time or, or try to raise money for it or bootstrap it themselves, it's, that's the hardest part of entrepreneurship is that I always say this, that like the first step is the hardest because for most of us that do this and have a desire to be entrepreneurial and to start something on their own, once you make that leap, you're just betting on yourself. And more often than not, that sort of removal of that safety net is what increases the likelihood of your success, right? So 
that, but that first step is really, really, really hard. And I, I get, you know, people reach out to me a lot that are thinking about these things and will ask my advice. And it's, I always have a hard time giving them good advice because the only thing I can really say is like, what's inside you? What, like, what's, what do you lay awake thinking about at night? Are you scared or are you excited? Are you, um, in a position even financially that you can take this risk? Because I think that get lo- gets lost a lot that like, there's a lot of people in the world that aren't able to just walk away from a job, you know, and there's a bit of sort of, you know, um, I wouldn't say unfairness, but like, you know, it's, there is a certain sort of socioeconomic class of people that are much more capable of taking these risks than other people. Right. And I think, so I think it's hard to just broadly say like, yeah, you should always go pursue, you know, your passion or your idea, because for some people, those opportunity costs might be really, really, really significant. But for me, I just sort of looked at the pros and looked at the cons and got comfortable enough with the risk and off we went. What would you say were the skills that you built while you were in the music industry that allow you to be a better entrepreneur, a, a better leader? So many. Um, like the first one, the first one definitely was working inside of a big organization uh, for a long time and learning all kinds of things from that experience. You really quickly learn what good management looks like. You learn sometimes even more from what bad management looks like. Um, you learn how to navigate the politics of a large organization. You learn about managing budgets. You learn about, um, you know, interacting with coworkers and colleagues. Um, a lot of things that I think that a lot of people that don't go work at big companies just don't really ever experience. Like the non-technical skills, really? Yeah, just the skills of being a professional. Um, and, and, and again, like I think more often than not, big companies are like complicated political places to work. And sometimes they are stifling of creativity and, you know, they, 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 um, sort of, um, discourage risk-taking things like that. But time inside of those companies can really teach you a lot. And so Andrew, my business partner and I talk a lot about the fact that we were, we were 34 or so when we went out and pursued the infatuation full time. And we're both, even to this day, we still talk about how happy we are that we spent time inside of a big organization because it taught us just a lot about how we wanted to build culture, how we wanted to empower people who were young, how we wanted to think about, you know, incentivizing and, and making people feel valued and all that stuff. There, there's a whole other side of this too, which is just that, especially for the infatuation, what we yeah. what we did was the way we built the infatuation was we just took our skills as me as a marketing person, and then Andrew, um, he was the VP of PR and media at Warner Brothers Records, mm-hmm. same parent company. And so what we did when when we first launched the infatuation as I guess like a food blog in 2009 was we just started applying all these tactics to building a fan base around a band to our little brand, and that meant you know, like we would always talk about, and I certainly felt this way um, very strongly that some of the best artists that I was fortunate to work with, even the big ones like Chris Martin from Coldplay, they're the artists that will sit outside of the tour bus in the rain, signing every t-shirt and ticket stub until the very last fan is gone. Um, Because they know that building those deep relationships with their fan base, that's really what matters. So that maybe you have an album out and you don't have a hit on that album that's on the radio, you can still sell out it gets arena. you through those rough patches as a musician. Yeah, you just build yeah. something that's not so dependent on the spite, you know, the ups and downs of anybody's career, right? And right. I would see also like little baby bands who refuse to like tweet back at their fans because it was below them or because they just wanted to have someone else deal with that. And that would bl- just make me so frustrated. So Andrew and I, the second anyone showed any interest in what we were doing and, and made us feel like they cared about what we were building, we would immediately connect with them. We would respond to every email that came in. We would tweet and respond to people on Twitter every time. We would, even on Instagram, like we would always interact with people and as though they were our friends because yeah. to us the fact that they cared about what we were doing was a huge gift and that we had to sort of respect that and give them what they want from us, which is access and, and interaction. Um, so, so here you guys are like at the peak of sort of your career, like in the music industry, where did the idea come from to even, or was this like just, you guys are both talking passionate about food and you're like, let's just start a blog or was it? Yeah, kind of. Yeah. I mean, we were, Andrew and I met funny story. Andrew and I met, we were both in college radio and there used to be a conference in New York called CMJ, which was the trade magazine for college radio. Uh. College radio back in the eighties and nineties was huge. That was where like Nirvana and REM and Bjork and all these like amazing artists broke from because the big commercial radio stations wouldn't play them. Um, and so we both worked for like really big 
important college radio stations and got invited to this conference. Where was he at? He was at uh, Ithaca College, WICB. Um, and where Bob Iger went. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so we both met at that conference. Funny enough, a guy that we knew there invited us both independently to be on set in the audience at TRL total mm-hmm. request live. Oh man. Which, was it Carson Daly? Yeah. And like, oh, it was shit. in the peak of Carson Daly, right? Yeah. Like I, you know, so we ended up on TV together. <laughs> it was ridiculous, but we met then. And for some reason that moment we met, even at the age of 19 years old, I guess we were, we were like, we're going to do something together. Part of that was fueled by like 15 Bud Lights that night afterwards, <laughs> you know, just being like young, cocky idiots. Yeah. But it was it was really true, and it's it's still true to this day, that we felt like for whatever reason there was something complimentary about our personalities and that if we maybe sort of combined on something, we could do something interesting. So we used to talk all the time about what that might be. At first, maybe it was a record company, but then you look at the industry and you're like, mm, not so sure we should do that. I think at one point we were going to make a T-shirt company, and we made like one T-shirt, and that wasn't it. But yeah, we were both really passionate about food and restaurants. As part of the music business, you're just out all the time. And we had corporate cards, so we could like out dine our salary. So we got really knowledgeable about the restaurants in the city, in New York City. And then our friends were just always coming to us, asking us questions like, hey, I have this, I have a first date tonight. Where should I go? Or my mom's in town. I got to figure out a restaurant. And I think what we then started to build the hypotheses around was there seems to be a lot of people who are really passionate about food and dining and restaurants, maybe more so than there were recently, you know, previously because of things like the food network and the early days of social media, bringing more people into the fold, but it didn't feel like our friends even had like a resource that they really trusted to go to for that kind of situational recommendations. So we decided to build something that might do that. And what we decided was we wanted it to be um, conversational and useful, but also funny because we just felt like we were passionate about food and restaurants, but you'd read a New York times review and you're kind of like, well, that sucked the fun. That was like pretty serious, you (laughs) know, didn't tell me a lot about what the experience, like I learned a lot about the chef and the concept, but I have no sense of if that place is a place to like bring my boss when he or she wants to go to dinner downtown. Mm -hmm. And so that was what we decided we were going to try to create. And we just started writing restaurant reviews and putting them on this like chronological blog. And that's what the first idea was like the first iteration. It was called immaculate infatuation. Even the name was terrible. Um, but but immediately it started connecting with people. And sorry, it was like a website or was it yeah. like a, it was a website? Yeah, it was just a website yeah. that, you know, like a paginated website where we yeah. would publish a review. Like on WordPress or something? Or? At the time, I think we had a friend build like some custom CMS, but then we moved yeah. it to WordPress. And yeah. Um, and yeah, it was, you know, we were fortunate too that we we did it at a time in which all these tools became available like WordPress and Twitter was brand new at the time. So we yeah. used Twitter to grow it and, you know, inst- Instagram ultimately came along and then, you know, we, we were only a few years after the iPhone came out. So we built an app for like barely any money with a friend of ours. So we kind of hit it at this time, which I think like even now, had we tried to do this now, even Instagram is so different with algorithms and all that. Yeah, like it's completely we were, changed. It's completely changed. Yeah. And so like when we were, for example, when we were, when we started this and we were on Twitter, Twitter wasn't what it is now, which is celebrities, journalists, and our president, right? It was regular people just trying to figure out how to connect with other people in this weird, you know, platform. So we would search, you know, part of our tactic was we would search Momofuku or some cool new restaurant in the city in the Twitter search field and then find people that were tweeting about it, follow them, follow them. Well, you know, it's funny because at that time, this is so early days Twitter that there was no DMs. There wasn't, I didn't, yeah, there probably wasn't DM, but there definitely was. I mean, this is back in the day where if somebody on Twitter followed you, you would get an email. All these mechanisms now that we use to prevent random people from entering our world were, were not in place. So we could really reach out and connect with people all over these platforms. And, and even with Instagram, there was no algorithm at first. So we just built this massive community on Instagram without having to figure out like what content is going to engage the most. It was, if people followed us, they would see the content. So we were very fortunate, I think, a lot in, in, uh, about that in the sense that the timing worked for us. Um, but at the, at the same time, it was also just about building something sticky with a great brand yeah. behind it and really interacting with people. Right. What about it was kind of more exciting? Like we talk about opportunity costs. What about it was more exciting than the path that you both were on? Um, or I guess you could speak for yourself, but like you were on in the music industry. Like, again, this was something that you're passionate about. And I think it's an interesting thing because it's like what you're passionate about when you're younger isn't always what you're passionate about when you get older and more wiser and more experienced. So I guess what about it was so exciting that, you know, you were willing to just gotta kind of go away from this thing that you were so, I know, invested in and passionate about for so much of your life. There's just nothing like building something yourself. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like there's really no replacement for that. And 
you get these weird hits of dopamine, like anytime something good happens, even if it's small, you know, um, the, the opposite is true too. Like when bad things happen, you feel it so intensely because you're just invested in something. But we talk a lot about that. Um, you know, we would watch our bands that we worked with, you know, it's amazing to watch a band, you know, who nobody knows about, watch them become famous and watch them have a hit record. Right. Cause it doesn't just, I mean, it rarely just happens overnight usually you'll start to see these little signals. I mean, now with TikTok and stuff. Now it's much different too, yeah. But but even still, like you'll, you know, you'll see, you can you can feel like Lil Nas X didn't become Lil Nas X just off of TikTok. It had to go from TikTok to radio to everything else. And so even I'm sure that in those early days, you know, Lil Nas X and his team could see on TikTok that like something was real and happening. Mm -hmm. And that's been so, it was so interesting to watch all that happen in the music business. But then when we started to watch it happen with our own thing in a different way, where we would be like, oh my God, like the traffic is going crazy month over month. And people are emailing us about how much they love this. And then like the Today Show reached out about what we were doing. It was that same, it was almost like, suddenly we were the band and yeah. it was so much fun. And I think we just then became obsessed with how do we build this? How far can it go? And it made that, it made that sort of walking away from this career thing a little easier. Cause you were just like, man, this could be real. This could be really big and we'll build it ourselves. You know, Chris kind of focusing on that point. So for the first five years, it was just you and Andrew writing reviews. Yeah. Any money being made? A little bit, yeah. I mean, we um, Andrew, being a publicist, was always really good at going out and networking with brands. And we made a list of brands that we wanted to work with. We also knew that that was probably the best way for us to monetize it just because we had been so used to you know, the music business. If you had an artist that didn't have a big budget and that artist wanted to make a music video, then what you would do is go reach out to like Nokia or Mini Cooper to say, hey, put a car in this video and give us... $15,000 and then you have a budget. Right. And so we thought about that in the terms of the, in terms of our company and, you know, we were doing events like that was really interesting as we would, we had an event one year, like a year in or so, and it like sold out immediately. And we we're like, wow, this is interesting. There's a community of people that are reading the content, but also paying us and showing up. What to this kind of event, event would, was it? I mean, we call it the Turkey leg ball cause our old logo was a Turkey leg mm. and it was just a party. I mean, we were like, well, I don't know. We'll have some food and some booze and yeah. People, I mean, we sold like 300 tickets, I think, in an hour. Wow. And um, and then so what we did there is Andrew was like, well, wait, I'll go see if we can get some money for this. So I think the Cooking Channel was like our first sponsor, the McAllen Scotch. Um, and we did a few of those events. And so we had started to figure out how to make some money from brands. It wasn't, you know, crazy money by any means, but it, it allowed us to basically operate the, the quote unquote company. We were funding everything else ourselves. We were paying for all the meals ourselves. We were throwing money into the business to make the events happen. Um, but there was something there that you could be like, Oh, I could imagine as we scale this getting bigger. And that was the path that we pursued in terms of that. So we, we finally raised some financing in 2014 when we went full time, but before that we were basically bootstrapping it and using, you know, three and $5,000 checks from Whole Foods or whoever to offset costs. Talking about the parallels again, kind of going back to like, you, you know, you allude a lot to the, what you learn in the music industry and how that kind of works to, to, to this, um, how, like if you didn't do that, if you didn't go down that path and didn't really know how that world worked, like the music world, do you think that infatuation would have had the same kind of growth or was it because of the the mindset that you guys had going in? Like we can take a lot of the things we learned and apply it to yeah. this. I don't know. It's so hard to know, right? I mean, there's there's times when I think about would we have grown a lot faster if we'd come from like digital media and knew all the levers to pull to like quickly grow an audience? Um, I, I don't really know. I mean, I think whatever, I mean, whatever we've done, I think we just, the only thing we can do is what we know how to do. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that because we didn't have expertise in, you know, digital media, it sort of probably let us avoid a lot of pitfalls that other companies, you know, sort of went into because they were just, they were looking at what the industry would tell them they needed to do to build a company. A good example of that is that we didn't start doing digital video, even though everybody in digital media was saying all the money's in digital video. And the money, it was there for sure. But you can go look at company after company after company that like basically went all in on digital video or all in on Facebook because that was the, what the industry was saying they should do to build it. And because we were just, you know, not in a part of that world and we want to just build it our way, we were able to dodge a lot of those those missteps. So yeah, I, I think we were we were definitely we sort of have an unfair advantage in the sense that I do think we're experts in brand and community building. And that's really what we do. And I think we're also incredibly good at the content. That was not something that any of us were trained in. We just figured it out. So mm-hmm. um yeah there's a I, book made to made to stick uh which says um he, he talks about how um 
like we don't know what it's like to not know the things that we do know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and I think the the word sometimes I think people get hung up on that too, right? Yeah. I think that people get hung up on how can I do this? I don't know how. Yeah. But like when you think about it, especially if you're doing something that hasn't been done before, you should there shouldn't be if there was somebody that knows how, yeah. it would have already been done before. Um and I we talk we still talk about that a lot inside of our company today, which is that, you know, if we knew if there was a playbook for this, we wouldn't have our opportunity. But there's not, which means that we're getting things wrong. Because everybody sometimes. else would have done it. Yeah, right. yeah. It, but we're getting things wrong sometimes. We're getting things right sometimes, and hopefully, you make more right decisions than wrong decisions, and you make it. Not to talk too much about your competitors, but how is the infatuation different than a company like you know Yelp, where it's user generated reviews, and you could still get access to all these restaurants and other businesses as well? But when you guys were doing this back in 2014, when you guys officially left your jobs, was it ever a concern of how you would differentiate yourselves out in the public? Like, this is what we are and this is what they are? Not really, because we'd already been doing it for five years, so we, we were already differentiated, right? We'd already kind of seen the proof of concept, and trust me, like, when we would go try to raise money, um, all we would hear from people is, why does anybody need more restaurant reviews? And they weren't wrong, um, but I think it was just hard for people to see why we were different, especially because either they hadn't interacted with it or used the product before, or just that they weren't they weren't seeing what we saw in terms of um, this big audience being there of people who were like really in like, let me back up. We talk a lot about the fact that what we do actually, yes, we write restaurant reviews, but actually what we provide people with is social capital, the social capital of being able to choose a great restaurant for any situation. And by the way, there's not anybody on the planet that doesn't want to have more social capital. And when you think about, I mean, it was true for us when we started in the music business, all of a sudden when people think you're the person that can pick a perfect restaurant like the president of the company starts calling you because they want to know where they're going to take this artist they're trying to close to sign a deal. And then next thing you know, you're visible to that person or dating, right? Like you're more interesting on a date yeah. if you can pick the right restaurant and order the right I mean, bottle of wine. You're literally a tastemaker. That's what, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that was, I think, the thing that people didn't necessarily see that we really knew the whole time was that we would hear from our audience people saying like, I feel bad about this, but I never tell people that I get all of my restaurant knowledge from the infatuation. I always take credit. And we were like, don't feel bad. That's amazing because yeah. whether or not, like maybe it's going to make it harder to grow because you're not out there evangelizing us necessarily. We, we're, you and I, you, the person taking credit for the, for the knowledge, we're going to have a relationship forever because you believe we're making your life better. And that's like irreplaceable. And that's something that a competitor can't take away from you. So it's been funny because we've really, I think, snuck up on people a lot. There's always competitors. Every market we go into, there's a competitor. I think Yelp is an interesting one. Like, look, we've never, we aren't user generated, at least on the infatuation side. And that was a differentiator. I think that when you look around, I think Yelp has always had trust issues based on the way that whether or not they are making restaurants pay for rankings and things like that, the idea that they do has hurt them a lot. Um, so I think there's a trust issue there that is hard for them to overcome. Um, you look around at lo most of our other competitors tend to be local media, right? So mm -hmm. the LA times, LA weekly, the New York times, Texas monthly. And look, I'm a huge fan and supporter of local media. I think that I would love for us to have more comp competition on that front. Cause I think it's good for the world. But when you look at what's been happening, all those companies, are out of business. And even if they're not, they're certainly not investing in tech and product and they're not hiring more people and putting more money into that stuff. They're pulling it back. So I think that's been interesting for us too, is to look around and say, well, there's a few national competitors that we have for sure, just kind of broadly in the food media category. But when it comes down to I'm in Philadelphia and I need to know what are the best restaurants in Philadelphia, there aren't a lot of other competitors out there. Certainly there's the, the user generated ones, the Yelp, the Google maps, the four squares, but otherwise, we tend to kind of be the only game in town. Yeah. Um, so what was that exact moment where you, you both decided, like, it's time to leave our jobs and go on? Was it when you guys raised financing? No, or? we did that. We decided to leave our jobs first because it was hard to raise financing when you had another job. Mm. People got to believe you're all in. And mm -hmm. um, we had started the process of raising money. I mean, we'd been talking about it for about a year, probably. Both Andrew and I's contracts at the company kind of happened to come up at the same time in, mm. like, April of 2014. So we both had to have a bunch of conversations together. You know, I think he was, he was, I think having a harder time imagining going full-time right away. Cause he had some other job offers that were interesting and he was married and had a kid on the way. He had a whole different set of considerations than I did at the time. So I was like, I'm going to do this. I'm not going back in. I'm not signing another contract at Atlantic. Like 
if I have to go full-time before you, it's cool. We'll figure it out. Um, but eventually as we got closer to, I think like the end of, of 2013, he and I were, you know, he, he was just like, you know what? I talked to my wife. I talked to my family. I'm in, let's do this. And then yeah. we basically, we knew that I actually was really, I wanted to make sure that I did right by my company and didn't walk away like January 15th. So I said, look, when in January, I think I went in January 15th to the president of the company. I said, listen, my contract is up April 1st or March 30, 28th or whatever it was. That's going to be my last day. You've got four months to find a solution. And, uh, and then we both walked, we literally both walked out the door together on like March wow. 28th of But were you guys like confident that you guys are going to raise money? Like I'm assuming you guys had maybe some money saved up to be able to like yeah. sustain yourselves. But like what, like would you, I'm sure you guys had like a limited runway of like how long you guys can operate this thing. Without. Yeah, it was terrifying. I mean, it was hard to raise money. It took us a whole year almost um, because people just weren't really interested in financing or what looked on paper like a food blog. Um, but what happened was we were, we were in a very good position in the sense that we were big enough in New York that a lot of people used the product and knew the brand and really loved it. And a lot of those people also happened to be angel investors or people in finance that had a little extra money on the side or, you know, ran a group of angel. There's a company called Empire Angels that was made up of young angel investors and they were all like fans. So it took a long time, but we were able to find our people. A lot of people that backed us in the first round were my bot, you know, the yeah. president of the company. Like you like, kind of knew, like if, if we're just all in on this, like we could we could raise this. Like it's not going to be like a long shot. There was never a point in which we knew anything. We just felt like we just got to keep going and yeah. we just got to keep grinding. And the weird thing about fi- fundraising is that it's always the hardest at the beginning because no one wants to be like all alone first in. So you know, by like the first probably the f- probably the first half of that money or you know six hundred thousand dollars of the million bucks was just an absolute slog. But then once we got to being like, well, as we're having these meetings saying, well, you know, we're raising a million bucks and it's the round is three quarters of the way closed. Then people are like, wait, I might be missing something. And then we ended up turning people away, which was really funny because the beginning of that year, we were just like, can we even possibly imagine raising this much money? And then by the end of the year, we were like, get, you know, we'll get you on the next round, which is wild. So did you care that this cap table is filling up with all these, I I assume a bunch of investors or was it just a few of them? No, there's a lot. And I loved that because I think the other thing that we knew, we'll put it this way. We didn't have a lot of other options. It's not like we were like this or this. We're going to limit our number. No, we were just like, cool, get the money, right? Um, 5,000, let's do it. We never took less than 25 because I think we were a little just, I mean, put it this way. You get to the point where $5,000, you're going to spend half of that papering the deal. Um, but, uh, no, I mean, we actually really liked that because what it meant was there was a whole bunch of mouthpieces out there talking about being investors in the company. And that was really actually proved to be really valuable because those people end up bringing brand partnerships to the table or helping you find an employee or whatever. So really actually, even in the second round, we kind of did the same thing. We went, we had some more institutional investors that took bigger chunks, but we still took 25s from all kinds of people just because we loved that idea of evangelism. Do you still feel that same way about that now? Because I know a lot of companies that we talk to that have raised money and they want to limit the number of investors they get just to make sure they keep a lot of equity. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, now we have, um, our last round, we raised a big round. We raised $30 million from Jeffrey Katzenberg's fund, um, that he had just started called Wonderco. Call it series A, I guess. Um, I never know where these things fit categorically. We actually, our second round, we called a series eats, Mm. which our hashtag on Instagram was eats with five E's because we were just like, I don't know, make it, you know, just being idiots kind of. But um, So that was your series A? Yeah, I guess technically. And so they basically, they actually bought out a bunch of the cap tables. So they became, they've now become our main lead investor. And, and This is Katzenberg. Yeah. And uh, I look, I think, you, I don't think you probably want to try to raise $30 million in $25,000 chunks, but um, it also, I think a lot of it just depends on, I think every company's different. I think we were never like a great fit for like the very traditional venture capital kind of investor. Like the Sequoias and the yeah, Jason Horowitz it, of the world. Exactly. We just aren't the kind of company that fits really well with that. Fortunately, we, we are, they, we in Wonderco felt like this was a really, really, really good marriage. So, um, I think it, I think it depends. I think that it's also anytime you have a lot of investors, regardless of the stage that you're in. A lot of how you manage that just comes down to, I think, you being proactive. And so I was always very, you know, I tried to be very conscious of always sending out like a monthly investor update that was pretty comprehensive because I felt like if I did that, I'd have to deal with less sort of like random inbound phone calls, emails, sort of asking people asking questions. To get to them before they get to you type of thing. Yeah. But also, I, I, you know, I think part of it's because I think 
you know, Andrew and I are pretty good judges of character, but our investor group down to the literal individual has always been like, they, they're amazing. And we never, I don't know, we just, we never had people, you know, asking for unreasonable things or bothering us for no reason. We always just have had this like really supportive group of people. Like one of my oldest investors who's still on the cap table just emailed me yesterday and emailed me. It was just like, Hey man, just want to say happy holidays. I'd love to know what's going on with this, but either way, I just hope you're good. And that's <laughs> yeah. always been the relationship we've had with yeah. our investors. I think that that's one piece of advice I try to give um, founders a lot um, is just that actually who you take money from is one of the most important decisions that you have to make because you end up marrying these people. It's a full-on marriage. And if you make the wrong decision and you end up with someone that you don't want to be married to, you can't just unwind these things. Like You can't just be like, no, 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 this isn't working out. Bye. And so I think a lot of companies end up really suffering because they end up taking money from the wrong people and then they end up in a place a year and a half later where they have an angry investor or they're being, you know, driven up a wall by someone who has a different vision for the company should go and that's not a place anybody yeah. wants to be in. Chris, I know you talk a lot about marketing and building a community and you touched a bit upon digital and social media. I've personally been following the infatuation on Instagram longer than I've actually had the app. How did you and the team use social media to drive growth? What were the things you saw that were working and not working? What was the community reacting to and engaging with? Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's always been about community first. We've always tried to be careful not to think of social media as like simply a growth tool to drive unique visitors to the website because we just, I don't know, we, we never felt like that would work for us. And also, we, we just kind of believed more that if you build a community, the rest of it will follow. Um, so for Instagram, for example, we were very early to the platform and, uh, I mentioned that, that hashtag we started eats with five E's. That was like a literal joke where we were kind of saying, well, we got to figure out a way for our community on this platform to identify themselves so that we can interact with them and we can, you know, elevate them and promote their photos and stuff. And so we started that hashtag and we made it eats with five E's because why not? You know, it was just seemed more fun than like Insta food. Yeah. Um, and that was a huge, huge moment for us because suddenly that hashtag got bigger than us. Like I think today that hashtag has been used something like 25 million times on the platform. And so it was funny because some people would be like, wait, you're not getting credit for starting that hashtag. And we were like, what does that even mean? (laughs) But at the same time, who cares? Because like we started something that's working and it's proof of concept that people want to bond around their passion for food and they want to, you know, um, identify with each other. And, And so what we would do is we would, find people using that hashtag in the early days. We would regram their photos. This is before many, nobody was really doing this at the time. The repost app or whatever. Yeah. Well, yeah. And like, and even before that, we would just like screenshot their photo, repost it and shout them out. And like, we built a lot of food influencers followings with that tactic. And Instagram just made us global, you know, to your point, many, many, many people out there knew us as an Instagram first. I mean, it's still, I'll, I'll do interviews like this. And they'll be like, so this Instagram started first. Yeah. They're like, no, actually, the company started four years before Instagram existed yeah. or three years or whatever. But um, I don't know. We, we, it never bothered us that a lot of people would find us through Instagram. It just pre- it created a challenge of we got to make sure they know we're more than that, right? And it became harder and harder as the algorithm started kicking in on Instagram because then it was always like, you know, you sort of see like the funfetti bagels and like the, that sort of like ridiculous food that would engage a lot, you know? Um, and we just never wanted to play that game. We weren't here to do food porn. We were here to do restaurant recommendations. So one thing that actually became like this huge moment for us was when Instagram stories came out Yeah, because it created another opportunity to do storytelling around what we do. So I went out like a day or two after Instagram stories became a thing. And I did this thing that I decided to call a restaurant review ride along because all I wanted to do is show the community that we review restaurants and this is how we do it. And by the way, much unlike a lot of the quote unquote influencers out there, we always pay for our own meals. We go in with an alias. And so we started that on Instagram stories and it changed the game for us because it helped people understand what we do and why we do it. And then, yeah, we would always do the like swipe up to read the review and things like that. And that was a great way to, to build the business. But more importantly, it helped people in the community understand what we did and they evangelized for us. So even still to this day, we have 27 Instagram accounts that range across all of our markets and we do restaurant review ride-alongs every day or two. And some people treat those as the review, like Brant, our editor here in LA, reviewed Angler, this fine dining place in the Beverly Center. And like he never actually wrote the physical review because, or the online review, because the Instagram story blew up so much that then like, we were kind of, we were sort of like well i guess the review's out 
you yeah. know, it just lives in a different place. So when, when did you guys make your first like outside hire and where was the company at the time? Uh, so right after we closed the round of financing in October of 2014, uh, we hired a young woman named Hillary Reinsberg. She was our first full-time employee. She had come from BuzzFeed. Um, we knew her because she had written, I think initially she had written a post on BuzzFeed about like the most interesting foods in New York or something like that. And she'd emailed us and said, Hey, you guys might like this. Yeah. And we just kind of kept interacting with her cause she was cool and seemed interested in what we were doing and knew the brand. And then as we started thinking about hiring, um, I think Andrew was like, hey, we should reach out to that Hillary girl. And so we did, and she came in, and within about 30 seconds of her quote-unquote interview, which we didn't even know how to do because, you know, Did whatever. you even know, like, what was the position you were interviewing her for? I was think that at like, the time it was like, God, I don't know, maybe content manager, editorial manager. I don't even know anymore. Yeah. Um, but she came in, like, we, we met with her within 30 seconds. I think we were both like, this is who we're hiring, and we hired her, and... She just had her five-year anniversary a couple weeks ago, and she's the editor-in-chief of the company. So how, I'm curious, right now as the team has grown, you know, you've talked about these reviews and everything is being done in-house. What does the process look like? Because it really sounds very fun. It is fun. It's a great job. Um, you, you'd have to ask Brant, who's about four, three and a half years into his job here reviewing restaurants in LA. It's tiring. I mean, you eat out a couple times a day. It's you know, I think Brant said the other day in an interview that you become one with your gym membership pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, Is that like a perk of the infatuation? I mean, we would love to be at a, I, we should, we're, we're working on it. All employees of the infatuation, we're working on it. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely a part of balance that everybody needs. Um, the way that, I mean, this is really Hillary's, te the testament to the work Hillary's done is she came in and said, cool, we got to make a process out of this. We have to figure out how we're going to train people to write in this voice. We have to figure out how we're going to find people to hire. We're going to have to figure out how to build a strategy around an editorial structure. How does content get written and how does it get edited and how does that process become replicatable and, and efficient? And she's just done a phenomenal job. The editorial team is the biggest team at the company. I think it's like 35 people. It's incredibly well run. Uh, it's full of really talented um, people who have just started with us to people who've been with us for a really long time. And we really have it down. Like we know how to create content. We know how to make sure the content is of a certain quality. Um, we're very, very, very focused on that quality and making sure that the content is useful. Um, I say a lot that I think we're defined sometimes more by the things we don't do than the things we do. Our content is restaurant reviews and guides. That's it. I mean, they take different forms across different platforms, but that's what you come to us for. And so I think that's made it easier. That sort of narrow focus has made it easier to run a scaled editorial team of people around the, the world, quite frankly, um, because the, the directive is very clear. It's not like write about food. It's cover your city, write restaurant reviews, write guides that people will engage with, and then we'll let the marketing team and everybody else help build an audience around it. So, Speaking of, I think I saw that you won a James Beard Award for a review. I got nominated. You got nominated. I got okay, nominated so. for... But yeah, but I think you should have won because it was funny. What did, tell you. us how that whole thing came about? Like, what was so you wrote a review about a restaurant that doesn't exist? Is that right? Yeah, we. Uh, I don't know. It was actually right when we went full time, and I guess it was one of those things where I was like, I guess this is my job now. Yeah. So, um, I had been taught. I had been pitching the Onion actually on the idea of writing f fake restaurant reviews because I. I just felt like there was such an opportunity to satirize like our and what we were doing. Yeah. Some, and this is the pre-fake news culture. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I was such a fan of The Onion, right? Yeah. Like, so I just thought, you know, sometimes when you're sitting there writing a restaurant restaurant review about like another like neo-Nordic concept, you do start to realize that some of it is true, but it's also like reads like satire, right? And so I'd talked to somebody at The Onion and I was like, let me write fake restaurant reviews for you. And they were like, no thanks. So then one day I was like, well, I guess I can do whatever I want because this is my company. So I'm just going to write a fake restaurant review on the infatuation. Not really, other than that it's going to be absurd, I'm not going to sort of say this is a fake restaurant. So I decided to call the restaurant Underfinger. Uh, the concept was that it was going to be the food that they serve at Danish funerals. Oh, and yeah. uh, the chef was a guy named Jesper Paulsen, who I think I said that he had interned at Noma because at the time, like every new restaurant in New York that was opening was this like new Scandinavian restaurant that was somebody that had worked at Noma. And like you get to the point, you're like, <laughs> so how many people worked yeah. at Noma, right? <laughs> um, and so I wrote this whole review. It was pure satire. The food rundown had things like a charcuterie glove and seahorse sashimi and like all this ridiculous stuff. And then I published it 
I went to bed. The next morning I woke up and it was like a thing. The New York Times had picked it up. Like just ran, like organically they picked it up. Like, yeah, it just started <laughs> spreading like wildfire. Oh, and God. then like people were emailing me. I still have an email saved from this like New York socialites assistant being like, so-and-so can't find the phone number for Underfinger and I need to find it immediately. <laughs> and I remember just thinking, oh my God, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened. Yeah. And so... Um, yeah, well, it became like, the, and again, it kind of goes back to like, I guess I, this is my job now. It became this whole thing where basically a, a guy that I kind of knew who was a chef who had worked in Colorado where I had come from, who had ended up on the Food Network, his name was Justin Warner. He was like, I think he won uh, the next Food Network star or something like that. And he had a restaurant in Brooklyn called Do or Dine at the time, which was kind of known for like gonzo menu items, right? Really cool restaurant, had gotten a big New York Times review. And he DM'd me on Twitter and he's like, hey man, is Underfinger real? And I was like, dude, no, what are you talking about? And he's like, good, because that food is encroaching on Dine's territory. And I just like, at that time, I had this like light bulb moment where I was like, yo, let's make it real for a night. And he was, okay. he's like, I'm in. And so before I could even like think about how that might be a bad idea or something I shouldn't spend my time on, he like six hours later DMs me back. He's like, I just bought eight pounds of dried seahorse at the Chinatown market. I'm like, oh my God. So <laughs> we cute. then... I made a fake website for the fake restaurant. We put up tickets on sale for like a 16-person dinner in June of 2014. What was it, like $500? No, it was like 150 bucks each. It sold out like immediately. Was it like a pop-up or you did it at the restaurant? It was a pop-up at the restaurant, oh, okay. basically. <laughs> and then I was like, wait, if we're going to do this, we should film it because what what is this, right? So I decided that if we were going to film it, it needed to be kind of like a mockumentary because the review is fake, right? So in my mind, I'm like, how do you do Spinal Tap but in a restaurant? And I went and I kind of wrote a script uh, and then I needed a, an actor to play the chef. So I went, somehow I found the Scandinavian Acting Theater Guild on like Facebook. And I just put this Facebook post up. It was like, I'm hiring for an actor, 400 bucks for the day. Here's the idea. Here's the review. And I, the first guy that responded back with his headshot was this really cool Danish guy named Albert Bendix. And um, this is in New York? Yeah. And so I'm like, cool, you're the guy. And I told him, I was like, watch Spinal Tap. And there was a documentary about Farron Adria, who's the chef from El Bulli, who I remember watching that documentary. And I mean, he's a legend, but the whole time he's on his phone, like the entire documentary, he's like talking to people in his kitchen and like whatever. And he's always on the cell phone, like having a meeting. So I told him, watch those two things. I'll give you the script, whatever. And then we decided we were going to shoot the whole thing. This is a long story, but it goes somewhere. Um, So then what happened was uh, we had announced the dinner Everything was like all set up. We'd hired a crew to shoot the thing. Everything's, you know, probably a week or two out. And I went to a new restaurant in New York called Gato that Bobby Flay, the celebrity chef, had just opened. And I walked in and Bobby's business partner recognized me. Like I didn't, we never make reservations under our name. I just walked in and sat at the bar. And Bobby's business partner recognized me and he came over and he's like, you ever met Bobby before? I was like, no. And kind of then went back to my drink or whatever and talking to a friend of mine. And I feel a tap on my shoulder is Bobby Flay. And I was like, oh, hey man. And he's first thing he says to me, he's like, hey man, I got to cook at that dinner. I was like, what dinner? He's like, Underfinger, I got to cook at that dinner. Oh, it's like, what are you talking about, right? And so I was like, listen, man, you could do whatever you want. Come on over, please, and like, we'll do the whole thing. Turned out he had some conflicting event that night and he couldn't do it. So I just asked him, I was like, well, what about, what if I come to your restaurant with my crew and have you talk about how Chef Jesper Paulson is like the greatest chef you've ever seen? I can't remember what I titled him, but I think it was something like um, failed, failed food contest winner or something like that. Um, but nonetheless, we made this like, I don't know, maybe like five minute video. Uh, Justin Warner made a meat glove, like legitimately made a meat glove. And we filmed people who didn't know what we were doing. Like half these people didn't know what they were walking into. We shot this whole thing and it was so ridiculous. And then we submitted it for a James Beard Award in the humor category, like as a joke. We got nominated. And is this is this out there by remember. the way? Oh yeah, you can find it on just search Underfinger on YouTube. Under you can Finger. find it. And it's still the review still lives on the site. But it was one of those things where that's a very long story to sort of say that like to me. I felt like it was so on brand that the only James Beard Award we've either ever sub- we've never submitted for another one and we've never been clearly never nominated for anything else. But the fact that the one that I got nominated for was for a restaurant review that doesn't exist. Yeah, that's perfectly legendary. on brand. Yeah, yeah. That's and also that we didn't win. That's also on brand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Pat and my girlfriend know that for the last couple of weeks I've been talking about Robert Iger and his book, and one of the things that he always talks about is innovate or die, and how constantly Disney's innovating. Obviously, when he became CEO, they bought Pixar and then Marvel and Lucasfilm and most recently 21st Century Fox. I know that you guys also had a recent acquisition with Zagat. Obviously, that was a way for you guys to really grow. 
How did they fit into the infatuations business plan and strategy for the future? Yeah. So the biggest thing that we were challenged with as we were building this company city by city is that that's a slow process, you know, and it's hard to imagine how you're going to scale globally when you're like, well, it's taken us, you know, four years to be in 20 cities. It's a lot of cities. Um, so we knew user generated content was going to have to play a role somehow. And, you know, in, in like 2017, I was really starting to try to tinker with a plan for that, but I was struggling with it because how do you have user-generated content live next to like a really strong editorial point of view and not have the user get confused and everything else. So um, as we were sort of tinkering with that, I randomly got an email from Google who owns Zagat. They had bought it from the founders in 2011 for $150 million. And Google emailed me and said, we're going to sell it. Do you want to buy it? I was like, well, it wasn't on the roadmap, but let's talk. And um, what I had realized was that as we started talking about it internally was that the thing is, is that Zagat was always user-generated. And a lot of people don't realize that, that the books, which is what Zagat started as, they were, it was Tim and Nina, the founders in 1979, the brand's 40 years old, giving their friends and family paper surveys to fill out about their favorite restaurants in their city. And then they would take that information and take individual sentences from everybody's review and aggregate the ratings and make like an individual review that went into the book. Which is cool, by the way. Really cool. I mean, like groundbreaking. It was the first time that anyone that wasn't, that someone who wasn't a professional restaurant critic could review a restaurant. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about that and you're like, wait a minute, that's like the first example of user-generated content. It's in the brand's DNA. What if we just take the Zagat DNA of user-generated content and build a user-generated platform that can live alongside the infatuation and kind of solve that problem for us without having to think about how it's all going to live together day one. And I'm just also a big believer in that brand is what matters, so especially in our space. Like brand trusts credibility. That's all that matters because if people don't trust you, it doesn't matter how many restaurant reviews you write, no one will pay attention. So we felt like over the 10-year span, we've built a really powerful brand in the infatuation, but Zagat is the brand that very often we were modeling ourselves after. It's the most successful brand in restaurant discovery that's ever existed. And it's still really powerful, even though it's had its own bumpy ride since the digital era arrived. But it just kind of became a really interesting idea. And so that's what we're doing now is basically we are, um, we just released the first Zagat print guide under the infatuation banner uh, on November 12th. And that's been an amazing um, sort of demonstration of how powerful and valuable the brand still is. The book is selling really well and people are just really excited it's back. But we're building a digital platform that's going to be our you know, community review platform mm-hmm. um, that'll come out in June of next year. And um, yeah, we think that in a lot of ways, while the infatuation continues on its path of going city by city, Zagat will help us fill in all of the gaps everywhere else and also give people a, another point of reference. Like restaurant, you know, people often, it's rarely like a zero-sum game, right? Like it's rare that somebody just reads one thing and then says, I'm going to go to this place. Like you'll read something, you'll talk to a couple friends, maybe you read something else. So having two really powerful brands in the space just felt like it gave us an unfair advantage as we thought about building what we want to build, which is the best restaurant discovery company in the world. And um, yeah, it just, it was funny because it was one of those timing things that, it just kind of happened at the right time. So we're excited. It's um, buying a company is an interesting experience to go through, especially buying one from Google. Did you, um, do you know, did they ever say like, I mean, I'm sure they did, like why they were selling it? Like they just didn't want to. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, they, I think you can look at Google as a company right now. They've definitely started to make moves to, I think, get back to their core businesses. Yeah, um, Larry and Sergey are gone. and Yeah. And I think yeah. there's other acquisitions they've made that yeah. they've, they've sold off and, um, you know, I, I give them a lot of credit because I think what they realize is that maybe that Zagat just wasn't, Google wasn't the right home for Zagat anymore, but that it shouldn't just go away, that it still had so much brand equity and that it should find a good home. And so when I first talked to the Corp Dev people about selling it, I mean, I obviously asked why they were selling it. I also wanted to know what their intentions were. Is this a money thing? Is this whatever? And basically they said to us, they were like, look, like we just want this place to land somewhere where, where it's going to thrive. And that was the pitch I made to them was I just was like, look, I'm sure that a lot of other digital media companies are interested in this platform, but we are a restaurant discovery company and this is where it should, should live. And we were fortunate enough to be the uh, winner of the, uh, of the, of the uh, date off, I guess yeah. you would call it, you know, <laughs> as a founder, how much do you think you've grown and what are the biggest lessons you've learned since starting the infatuation and also touching a little bit upon some of the challenges you've dealt with? Yeah. Um, man, I've learned so much. I think that's been actually the thing that has been most gratifying for me is that I think back to five years ago and the person I am now versus the person I was then, like I've just, I've, I've just had my hands on so many different things and 
being have been able to have a front row seat to again buying a company, uh, raising money, hiring people, managing people. Um, you know, just running a business is really hard, and you you learn so much along the way. I think the things that you do confront is that at some point, you know, you realize that there are things that you're good at and there are things that you aren't. When you're an early stage founder, you have to do everything. And that's not, you're just no choice. Like I had to build our QuickBooks, you know, and like run our QuickBooks. I am terrible at math. Like finance is not my game. And even as we've scaled up, like it's hard for me sometimes because our investors or other people, like I, there are just things that aren't, I'm not naturally good at. And so you try to hire for those things and fill in your own gaps, you know, and, and, and sort of, Ideally, you can build like a Voltron of, you know, yeah. people that are better at certain things than you. Um, I think you do have to learn also that like sometimes there are people that are going to be better at some of this stuff than you and you got to let go. And I think that for a lot of founders is really difficult. And it is even for people as they become, you know, leadership at your company. I've had to say to a lot of people like, look, you did a great job with that thing that you worked really hard on. But like, we're going to hire someone to do it because they're going to be better at that thing. And now I want you to focus on this other thing that I know is your superpower. Mm-hmm. And so, and that's something that you make clear, like from day one, right? Like, or is it something that it's hard to make clear day one because so often you're just trying to fill a hole, you know, and and yeah. and you're just trying to solve a problem by saying we got to hire someone to do this, right? So I've had right. I've had employees and, and colleagues that came in very young at the company, and you just throw them at a problem and say, okay, we're going to build a food festival. Go figure out how to do that, and they do it, right? Yeah. And then you move them on to something else, and then you move them on to something else, and everybody's trajectory and experience through either starting a company or like being a part of a company that's scaling is very different. But I do think the one thing that's, that's always the same is that the ups and downs are insanely intense. You know, you feel the successes intensely and you feel the failures intensely. And one of the things you have to learn to do is not get too high and not get too low to sort of find that middle. Um, but it's hard because you do confront, I mean, Andrew, my business partner and I, like our roles are evolving inside of the company and, it's it's just strange because again like you know you used to do i used to do all of the writing right and now i don't do any of it and that's actually something i think i'm really good at and i like doing but it's not what it, me trying to still write restaurant reviews at our company would hurt the company yeah. you know you need to well, sort speaking of, of bob Iger, i think like he still kind of goes and does like you know what does he say Critic, critiquing movies and well yeah he's a big micromanager i think he speaks positively about it yeah he says uh micro i think it's actually michael eisner thing that micromanagement is severely underrated um and there's an element of that i think i think that's about details he does talk about that that it's about paying attention to the details but yeah i think the takeaway for me is just that um the biggest thing that i've learned is that uh that a huge part of being successful is just fighting. Like every day you just keep fighting because I think there's a a bit of a misunderstanding from people that don't sit in the seat every day that it gets easier as you get bigger because you're not sort of, you know, fighting to keep the lights on every day. And yeah, there might be some more stability, but it doesn't. It actually gets harder because the stakes get higher and there's more to lose and there's more people to disappoint and you you have more people that expect a certain thing from you. And so, you know, I think for me, it's, it's really just been a lesson in like resilience and dedication and um, being super, super, super willing to like step aside when you need to step aside and then jump in when you have to jump in. Um, but I think, you know, it's hard. It's, it's really hard. There's obviously a lot of books out there and a lot of entrepreneurs on social media that, you know, give advice all the time. I'm curious if you were to write a book right now, targeted towards entrepreneurs and future leaders, what would you title the book? Uh, pay attention to your people. Cause I think that's the thing is right. Nobody can do it. You cannot, no one person builds companies. Like it's about, it's about a group of people. And I think that gets lost a lot. I think that especially look like founders and entrepreneurs, there's a bit of that, like kind of, you know, everybody sort of has an idolized version of what that is. And and I think in some level, like everybody thinks like, I want to, I would love to do that. And, and that's, it's great. Like it's, you know, something to aspire to for some people, but you, once you get caught up in the idea that you're the secret sauce and that like, you're the reason solely that something is successful is when everything starts to fall apart. And the second that you start to forget that, you also have people showing up every day who care as much as you do and who want things from themselves, right? Like, I think it's sometimes people lose the fact that people are working at your company, not just because they like the product, but because they think they're going to have some career growth and they want they want to believe in a mission. They want to believe in what they show up to work every day to do. And if you pay attention to that, you know, you, you get a big payoff. Like, we've been really fortunate to have really you know, very little turnover, a lot of the people that started with us are still with us. And 
Um, I think that like that's been huge for our success because you don't have to retrain people, right? Like right. you don't have to sit there and that's teach a, a new person every couple of years how to do the job. And if you're fortunate and you're good enough to have really talented, you know, you're, you're, you get really good talent into the company, watching those people grow is also so gratifying. You know, like Hillary's a good example of that yeah. first employee that stepped in the door. And now I see her pulling herself out of her editorial team because she's built this really successful, stable thing. And she's got people under her who have so much talent and so much potential that it actually allows us to keep scaling because I can say to her like, yeah, cool. Let's go focus on our video strategy now, or let's go focus on something else because you've now built this scaled out thing. And so, you know, she has the ability to do it even though she's never done it because she was able to prove herself doing something. Yes, exactly. And I, and had I held on too much to me being the content guy, you would have never known that. I would have never known that. I would never given her the opportunity to thrive. And so that's actually the part that becomes hard is when you have all these talented people that want growth for themselves and they want to be at the company and they want to contribute more. Sometimes you're like, I just wish I had more seats. You know, I wish I had more opportunities to give you that growth. But as long as you're paying attention, it works out. So I think I think that's the biggest thing that people miss is that it doesn't like. Yes, you know, your vision is what got you here, and it will continue to like take you to the next place. But without people to execute on that vision and do it at a high level, it means nothing. What's your favorite restaurant in LA? And what's your favorite restaurant in New York? Great question. Um, my favorite restaurant in LA changes a lot because there's a lot of great restaurants here right now. Um, I do love John and Vinny's, even though we get pizza and pasta in New York. Um, I like All Time and Los Feliz, which is a great kind of neighborhood restaurant run by a husband and wife who are just really cool and talented and the food's great. Uh, in New York, uh, I love, there's a couple of restaurants that are wine driven, but like excellent Italian restaurants, uh, Pasquale Jones and Charlie Bird, a new spot in, um, Fidei called Crown Shy. Like those are all great. I know I just gave you six restaurants, but that's the answer. What do you think is missing in the industry that you think is going to come in the next decade as we head into 2020? What do you think is the next wave or the next thing that we'll start seeing based on what you've seen through the infatuation and just the just the talk and the chatter? Well, I mean, delivery is a huge thing, and not that it's new necessarily, but I think you're going to see just an absolute explosion in you know delivery being a bigger part of people's lives around dining, and that's going to be really interesting. I think there's great things about that. I think there's going to be challenges to the industry for sure. Um, I think beyond that, I, I'm a I'm really passionate about wine. Um, and I think we see young people becoming more and more passionate about it. I mean, the natural wine thing has been really big. I think that leads to more discovery and more sort of pursuit of that passion for young people. We want to be a place where people can find that information. So you'll find us and see us doing some stuff in that space soon. Um, I think, you know, I, I don't know that I feel like there's one thing that's like missing. I do think that unfortunately, a lot of what's been happening is as cities like New York and LA and San Francisco get more expensive you see a lot of the same. You see a lot of restaurants opening up in the lobbies of hotels with like a pork chop, a pork chop and a pasta on the menu. And a lot of that's because it becomes very, very much an economic, uh, yeah. you know, calculation about how you're going to sell to a certain clientele and make your rent. Like and, there's a risk involved with going outside of that and doing something. Yeah. And unfortunately when real estate, when real estate costs rise so much, it becomes almost impossible for, people to take risks. So, you know, when you look at like great mom and pop restaurants or immigrant run restaurants or, you know, people that want to bring a new cuisine to the table and elevate it, it can be really hard because maybe there's not a track record for this great new Nigerian restaurant that someone wants to open and you got to start somewhere. So I think one thing that we've seen a lot of, which is actually a great thing, is that cities that have a lower cost of living are starting to attract a lot of this talent of people who want to try something and know that they can do it in a market that costs less and they can have a better quality of life doing it. So, I mean, you can look across the country right now, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Detroit, Phoenix, like there's great talent and really creative, um, smart chefs and restaurateurs doing interesting things that maybe you wouldn't see. You certainly don't see as much of it in New York anymore. I think LA is even getting to that point too, where a lot of that innovation isn't possible anymore because it's so much more expensive. Like think about Squirrel, which is this amazing place in, well, it's, no, it's in, um, it's technically I think in Silver Lake, but it's in this kind of funky part of Silver Lake that's almost like North Hollywood or something. But like, you know, it's in a, it's in a neighborhood where there aren't a lot of other restaurants. And I'm sure that when um, the restaurant store and chef, uh, Jessica, when she found that place, it certainly probably wasn't crazy expensive. And I think, you know, that's harder to find now in a place like this. And um, hopefully, hopefully that can change without it meaning that there was some great economic collapse. But yeah. I do think, I mean, in New York, we experience this a lot that just New York is so expensive that, you know, someone, 
just who wants to make a restaurant, it's almost impossible because it just costs so much money to get started. That's so we see a lot of like pop up street pop ups, yeah, that kind of stuff. Because yeah, it's not a restaurant, it, but yeah, it's, you can do it without committing this crazy exactly. amount of overhead. I mean, in New York, you can end up three or four million dollars in the hole before you open your doors just because of the rent and the build out and all that stuff. And like, yeah. who can do that? You yeah. know, you know, a few months ago, I was in New York and we were at this Thai restaurant. It was a mom pop restaurant, and um, we were talking to the owner. He came out and. He's like, you know, you got to guess what the rent is here. And I said, what, 20000 He's like, 21000 And I was like, how is that even possible? You're selling pho. There's no fucking way you're making that much money. They got to sell a lot of booze. That's what happens. Yeah. They really do. They got to, because that's where the margin is. But it's also why you see things like Grand Central Market do so well, because a lot of that overhead is handled. They can go in and try something. And then if it works, they can then build out, you know, like the Kismet, um, Kismet girls that run that restaurant in, in Silver Lake. They started with something in Grand Central Market. And I think there's a lot of examples of that happening that's really positive. So hopefully more of that will exist so that people can kick off ideas and then take them to the next level after there's a proof of concept. Chris, thank you so much for sharing your story. This was this so is, great. This has been so much fun. Thank yeah. you, guys. Really appreciate it. Yeah, we're excited to see what happens next with Infatuation. Me too. Yeah. It's going to be fun to see. Yeah, thank you so much. Hopefully you're back in LA uh, more often. I'm going to try, for sure. We'll hang. We'll go to a restaurant. We'll have, some, have, have a meal. <laughs>